Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, this is Alex Dolan, the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides. If you like the show and want to support us, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others find the show, and it makes all of us very happy. So thank you so much for continuing to listen, and back to the show. Saint of Suicides. Created by Alex Dolan. For hours, Blossom had been waiting for the man to get up and head to the bathroom. The man ahead of him hobbled as he walked. One foot was wrapped in gauze and sheathed in a closed-toe post-op shoe, something that looked like a sandal with Velcro straps. His other foot squeaked on its rubber sole. Because of his size, he seemed to freeze in pain as his weight settled on the bum foot, and he made his way delicately, far more slowly than a man 15 years younger should walk. Blossom didn't worry that the man would sense his approach. He was far too consumed with his own pain to look behind him. The man pushed open the bathroom door. Blossom followed. He'd been checking the door from down the hall to see the comings and goings, and as anticipated, no one else was in there. The room was fairly large, with six wall urinals and an equal number of stalls. Blossom was alone in the room with Detective Bastion Fennel. Fennel stood at one of the urinals, his back to Blossom his body tilted so he could rest most of his weight on the good foot. He must have heard someone enter behind him, but didn't bother to look. The men's room on this floor didn't lock, so to give them some privacy, Blossom placed a yellow plastic stand in front of the door, borrowed from the janitor's closet. It bore the message, closed for cleaning. He also wedged two rubber doorstops beneath the door to keep it closed. When Fennel heard him kicking in the wedges, he finally turned to see who was there. He almost shouted, Almost. Blossom was on him in a flash, the way a snake snatches a pinky mouse. He wrapped an arm around the larger man's chin and dragged him across the floor to the stalls. Having been denied the opportunity to zip himself up, Fennel drizzled urine all over his pants and onto the floor. Blossom kicked open the stall farthest from the door. He knew what he'd find before he got there. For whatever reason, any time after three in the afternoon, his colleagues at the OPD felt like there was no need to flush and whoever used this stall typically left his excretions in the bowl, along with the paper toilet seat cover, which remained half-submerged in fluid the color of apple juice. Kicking out Fennel's bad foot, Blossom drove the man to the floor. The younger detective must have weighed north of 240, but Blossom manipulated his body with relative ease. Fennel's head smacked against the toilet seat, but he barely had time to register the pain before Blossom grabbed a fistful of hair and dunked his head into the Blossom watched the bubbles ripple the surface for several seconds before he let Fennel gasp for breath. 
You crazy fuck! Back into the ballroom went. The astringent fumes of the urine singed Blossom's nose, and he imagined that whatever fennel currently tasted must have been exponentially worse. He felt the man's body slacken. Fennel was losing consciousness, and Blossom needed him awake. Are you ready to listen? The serenity of his voice seemed to terrify Fennel more than if he'd yelled. Fennel nodded in a spasm. Yes. The two men with you. They were the Bard police who were with Jim Keller that night. Yeah. You were stupid to involve them. <laughs> they called me. It should have surprised Blossom, but it didn't. Cops were vindictive sons of bitches. Do you know how dire your situation is? You gonna get me kicked off the force? You think I'm talking about your job? I'm talking about your health, detective. You came to my home. You made me feel unsafe in front of my son. I suppose I could turn you in. I could even sue you. But I'm not gonna do that. And it's not because of my duty to you as a colleague. It's in part because of the two men you were with. They lived through that shooting. And now they have to live through it again because of this investigation. I can understand why they're angry. And I can understand why they want to take that anger out on me. But I'm giving them a pass. Because they're misguided. They might have approached you, but you're the one who led them to my house. Correct? Fiddle <laughs> found enough strength to swing a clumsy punch. <laughs> Blossom easily blocked it and gave Fennel a quick jab to the throat. You led them to my house, correct? Fennel nodded reluctantly. <sighs> to be honest, I know those officers didn't kill those boys, or I'm 99% sure of it. You know how. Fennel didn't respond at first, but when Blossom raised his hand for a strike, Fennel shook his head. <sighs> Their alibis all checked out. They were working on those nights, but last night convinced me. All three of you were so amateur, there's no way you could pull off any of these killings. You drove to my house in what was obviously a department vehicle, and you had either the arrogance or ignorance to think I wouldn't recognize your fat fucking ass just because you had on a mask. Frankly, anyone that Bush League lacks the capacity to pull off the train murders. They just wanted you to leave Keller's family alone. Cops look out for each other. My job is to reveal the truth. That's all. That's what we get paid for. If you think I take pleasure in questioning fellow police officers, you're wrong. If you think I get satisfaction in making a bereaved family relive the loss of their husband and father, you have gravely misjudged me. But that is what we're paid to do, detective. We follow a case to every dark, ugly corner until we can bring the truth to light. My fucking hero. You still don't understand what's happening here, do you? Blossom pressed one hand on Fennel's broken ankle and the other against his mouth to muffle him. If you ever come after me again, or if I ever see you again near my house, I will give you an injury that won't heal. Do you understand me now? You know... I could... I could report you. Sure you could. Then I would have to explain all of this drama, and you'd have to explain this. Blossom pointed to the multiple facial cuts and bruises sustained from the beating he'd taken outside his home last night. Not to mention these. Blossom lifted his shirt to reveal purple bruises on his ribs. I think you cracked a rib. 
I know because I've had a cracked rib before and it's excruciating. You can't even laugh without it pinching. I imagine that's not really an issue for you. In addition to my injuries, which I've documented with the doctor, I have a witness who saw the whole thing through the window. If you make me come after you, detective, I will leave every aspect of your life in ruins. Now please, tell me you understand. I understand, you piece of shit. Dissatisfied Blossom. You're going to want to get that ankle looked at. I've already been to the hospital. That's why it's wrapped, dumbass. No, not that one. As swiftly as he moved last night, Blossom swooped down and took hold of the other foot. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, the show is at the punchline again. Diego is sitting over at the bar. When I called him back yesterday morning, he sounded frantic and insisted he couldn't talk on the phone. He begged me to meet up in person. He looks miserable. Under the club lights, his face almost looks gray, and he can barely hold his head up. I'm guessing he hasn't slept well for days. I almost wonder if he should be drinking in this condition, but he's at a comedy club and them's the rules. He's messing with my mojo just by being here, because despite his inherent cheesiness, I'm actually worried about the guy, and I'll be thinking about him throughout my set. To add to the stress, when I get on stage, tonight's bachelorette party won't shut up. They haven't been able to keep quiet all night, and they talk throughout the host set. By the time I get up there, they're all trying to crow over each other with their own jokes, and they wrench up the volume so each woman's laughter cuts through the room like an air horn. It's not the first time I've dealt with these parties, but it's the worst one I've seen. I do the bachelorette party joke. I see we've got a bachelorette party in the house. Can I give you some advice about bachelorette parties? Spend the money, ladies. I went to a cheap one once, an all-male review, but they don't bring out the A-list talent during the day. The guys look like old gold miners. There was no magic mic. I think the headliner went by ripped Van Winkle. I try out the bit about me wanting a penis, and it seems to land. I don't do many sex jokes, and I was worried this one would seem out of character. I guess not. 
Everyone seems to like a good dick joke. Maybe all the booze just makes it an easy room tonight. The girl in the tiara and the bride-to-be sash decides to make her comedy debut. I want to tell a joke. She ambles up to the stage and tries to grab my microphone. It's my night and I want to tell a joke. While she comes after me in the mic, I prattle through my set. A few steps away from her, she chases me around the stage. Come here with that mic. If I call for security, they would come and grab her, but I'm actually having a little fun. It might be the weirdest thing that's happened to me on stage. I got a good story. <laughs> but it's so surreal. I don't want it to end. I promise I'm funny. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a boxing ring trying to outdance my opponent. Also, I feel like if security comes up and drags her off stage, I might lose the crowd. Come on. People are usually on your side when it comes to hecklers and crazies. But you can't pick on women at a show, even if they deserve it. Guys are fair game. If some drunk guy had come up on stage, he would have been kicked out of the club by now. But the crowd has a softer spot for women, especially this woman on the cusp of her wedding. And if I have her booted, her whole table, the dozen loud ladies who have funded half of the bar's take this evening would immediately turn. And maybe the room would turn with them. So I dodged her for the entire set, managed to eke out my jokes, and in the end, cut more laughs out of the physical comedy. I get a rousing applause, more for my fortitude than for the quality of my material. Listen to that applause! Great first time on stage! Let's hear it, folks! When it's all over, I can't help but give the crazy bitch a hug and a kiss. Have a great wedding, love. I hold her hand and walk her back to her table so she won't disrupt the next comic. Whispering, if you stay in your seat for the rest of the night, I've got the next round. She kisses me on the lips for this, and I think somewhere in the recesses of her mind, however she reconstructs her memory of this evening, she might even think she was a star. When I come back to the bar after my set, Diego is talking to Wesley. Or I should say Wesley is standing, his face close to Diego's. The way Wesley clenches his jaw makes me worry that something might break out between them. Diego sees me first and immediately shuts up. His eyes look so mournful. He really needs to talk to someone and for whatever reason, he thinks that someone is me. Wesley has his back to me and when he turns, his face changes as well. Everything about him softens and he gives me a hangdog look of guilt that tells me he knows he was perhaps too aggressive with Diego. He gives me a hug and a lingering kiss on the lips, possibly making a show of it for his rival. I'm sorry you had to see that. I don't normally have to dodge a bachelorette. Are you kidding? That's the best thing I've ever seen at a comedy show. Diego's eyes are insistent. Do you have a minute? Let's go outside. Wesley follows us. I can't ask for some time alone with Diego because it might start an argument. At least, that's what I worry about with guys. Escalation. Also, I can't make a commotion. Not when the host is up there introducing the next act. It's a short walk from the bar to the front entrance. So I wait until we've made it just outside the door to place a gentle hand on Wesley's chest. Can you wait for us inside? He's had a few drinks. I could taste it on his tongue when he kissed me. 
and he's looking over my shoulder at Diego. Why? We're all a part of the group. Is this a group thing? I'm talking to you, man. It's not really a group thing. If it's not a group thing, then why do you need to talk to her at all? If Wesley was sober, he wouldn't be talking like this. At least, that's what I tell myself. Honestly, I haven't known him for that long. Part of me is shocked at his jealousy. It's all confusing. Of course, someone left a voicemail. I need to take this. Both men look at me like I'm nuts. Seriously. As I pick up the phone and wait for the voicemail to connect, Wesley continues abrading Diego. I know what you're doing. And it's not cool. <laughs> what am I doing? She doesn't like you. You know that, right? She doesn't like you. It's not gonna happen, and you showing up like this. You're not just being disrespectful to me. You're making yourself look bad. Why don't you go back inside and enjoy the comedy? Excuse me? I'm saying, run along and let us talk. Oh, no, no, no. You don't talk to me like that. I don't care if you guys are friends or what you think you are to her. <laughs> I've known Haven for two years. What are you? You met what, two weeks ago? Who the hell are you to tell me I can't talk to my friend? That all she is to you? A friend? Diego places his hands up in a sudden moment of revelation. I'm sorry. I just wanted to talk to you about something. He leaves us and doesn't look back. In a few moments, he walks across the roof deck and disappears down the staircase. There's something that makes me uneasy about the way he was talking. I think it was the resignation in his voice. I've never heard him like this. I move to follow him, but Wesley grabs my arm. Haven, wait! We stare at each other, and I look at his hand, clenched over my wrist, and then up at him with a fury I've never let him see. All right, Haven. Go. Wesley lets go of my arm and waves me off, heading back inside the club. I can't worry about what he's thinking right now. Diego might genuinely need my help. I rush over to the stairwell and make it down a flight before I see someone. It's just the shadow of a thin man cast against the concrete wall, and I run to it, expecting to find Diego in his dark suit, reeking of his birthday present cologne. Instead, I run into a slight man, his head obscured by a black hoodie. On the landing, I retreat until my back hits a concrete wall so hard I'm slightly winded. <laughs> I immediately fish my pepper spray out of my pocket, but the man reaches into the kangaroo pocket and flashes a knife. It looks like a steak knife that he might have swiped from his kitchen. Still sharp though, still two feet from my stomach. He speaks for the first time. You're not going to need that. I take a quick inventory of my situation. The pepper spray in my hand, the knife in his. I glance around. I don't see anyone coming. Diego is long gone. It's just the two of us alone in this random stairwell in the middle of the city's sleepy business district. He lowers his hood, and for the first time I can see his face. I don't know if that's worse. Now I can identify him to the police. Do you know me? 
I, I don't. The man is in his early twenties, Latino, with a shaved head and a ring through his lip. Not a bad-looking kid. I'd have remembered him. I'm trying to remember his voice. He speaks like a native Californian, but with just enough accent that I know he's bilingual. The one thing that makes me hopeful is his expression. He seems scared. But that doesn't make me safe. Plenty of scared men kill women. You know me. I don't. I really don't. Only when I finally talk and hear the warble in my voice do I recognize how terrified I am of him. I was there. He looks around to make sure no one else is listening. I was there on that night, March 25th. I tried to remember him, but I can't place the voice or what mask he might have wore. But the fact that he's admitting to being there makes my stomach clench. We're dying. My boys are dying. Someone is killing us. I keep examining the knife he's holding. I feel the weight of the pepper spray in my hand. I don't know if I have time to spray his face before he could lunge at me. Looking at his build, wiry but athletic, I know I wouldn't stand a chance if I tried to outrun him. I try to keep him talking. Who are you? Turo. No last names at this point. He seems unsure what to do with himself, and he absently runs the knife blade against his face as if you were going to shave with it. I tried to humanize myself. I'm Haven. I know. Haven Otomo. You're easy to find. You've got your own website and everything. Have you been following me? I needed to talk to you. I couldn't find the right time. I, I was scared. Think of how I feel. Have you been to my house? Your home. The therapy group in Oakland. Were you there that night on Grand Avenue? Outside the alley? Oh, once you've got a starting point, it's not that hard to follow someone. I'm finding it hard to breathe. For a moment, I feel like I'm back on the BART car in 2015, face down during the gunfire, thinking these will be my last moments of life. I look down at the knife and fight to get out my words. What do you want from me? He stares at me angrily. Shocked, I don't already know. My friends are dying. What does that have to do with me? Are you two listening? My boys were on the train with me that night. Someone's killing them. Someone's getting revenge for that night. And I think you know who it is. He closes the distance between us. And there's nothing I can do but keep my back to the wall. I could use the spray, but I don't think that would stop him at this point. Why would you think that? Because you're part of that group. A group for people who lived through it. They're angry. The way his eyes twitch. The wince of his mouth. Evidence of his own guilt about that night. They should be too. They've got a right to be. You all lost people. It wasn't right what happened, but I'm losing people too. Someone's coming after me, and I think you know who it is. Why didn't you go to the police? And admit I was one of the shooters that night? I can't help you. Are you sure about that? More on instinct. My hand snaps up and I try to blast his face with a pepper spray. But he catches my hand in his wrist and he squeezes until I drop the canister to the ground. He leans into me and I can't tell if he's feeling rage, grief, or just the pressure of desperation. 
Someone is coming to kill me. Haven Atomo. I need help. Please help me. I expect my phone to buzz once, but it doesn't stop. Someone's trying to call me. Toro notices it too, and his eye twitches when he hears it. You know who's doing this! Tell me! I don't! Tell me! He embeds the tip of the knife into my neck. I can't speak. I can barely think. In this moment, I'm reminded of the time David Cohen pinned me to the side of my building, even though this is much worse. My brain is swimming, and I can't collect a cogent thought in my defense. We have a view of the street from the landing on the stairs, and I see two familiar figures. The taller one is Detective Blossom. He's with a sidekick. Turo grabs me roughly by the shirt collar. Did you call them? How could I have? Turo doesn't have time to refute me. He gives me a final admonishing glare and sprints back up the stairs. I'm trembling. I know Detective Blossom must be coming to see me, and I don't have much time before he's here. I pick up my phone. Diego left a voicemail. Haven, it's Diego. Sorry about tonight. I didn't mean to make a scene. I don't know who to talk to. Group helps a little, I guess, but not that much. There's something I needed to share, and I don't think anyone would have forgiven me if I shared it with them in group. I was hoping to talk to you. It's important. I think you might understand. I don't know. Maybe it's not worth it. It's not like it's going to change anything. Can't bring back the death, right? I just have a feeling. I think that night broke me. And I don't think I'm, I'm coming back. I guess I'm not that strong. I thought I could be, but... I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I called. I should be calling someone else. Maybe a doctor, but... What's the point? Detective Victor Blossom has found me on the stairs. He's dressed in that same damn dark suit. Not casual enough for a comedy club and not formal enough for an office. His face is badly bruised, which makes him appear more menacing. He has his partner with him... She's pretty and dresses better than him. What is her name? Gimlet? No. Gibson. You may want to call them back. I need to make this call. Wesley appears at the top of the stairs. He has a jacket in his hand. He must have been making his exit. He stops when he sees me. And when he sees the police, he casts a fleeting glance behind him. Maybe considering whether he should retreat from all of this. Blossom and the younger officer exchange glances, and once he gets within arm's reach, he grabs the phone out of my hand. In a fluid movement, he disconnects the line and puts the device in his pocket. I have no time to react. The detective has no idea what he's just done. Even though we just fought, Wesley gets defensive on my behalf. 
He comes down to the landing where we are and steps close to the detective. Blossom regards him with a withering stare that serves as a reminder that he is a policeman and Wesley is a civilian. I need that phone back. That was an emergency. You need to calm down. Calm down? Fuck you both! A man's life is at stake! You really shouldn't swear at the police, Miss Otomo. You're going to want to listen to us. We, the police, also have an emergency. And unfortunately, our emergency trumps your emergency, because a man is actually dead. You need to come with us. You too, Mr. Pope. What is this? What are you doing? Are you arresting us? For what? You see any cuffs? We're not arresting you. You're to come with us for questioning. I need to get my phone back. That's all I can think about. Arrest me! Blossom almost cracks a smile. Why? Then I'll get my phone call, and I can call this man back. He's in desperate need. Detective Blossom shoots Gibson an almost amused look. I'll punch you in the fucking face! Blossom speaks to me as if I'm an unruly toddler. You really don't want to do that. If you punch me in the face, I will have to arrest you, and will have to process you before you can make your phone call. It'll take hours, and you're not going to want that. Not to mention, you'll then have a record. Please, come with us. Who's on the other side of this phone? A man with a medical emergency. He's in imminent danger to himself. You're saying he's suicidal. That's exactly what I'm saying! How do you know this man? He's someone from Group. You've met him, Diego Casada. I regret mentioning his name. But I think this is an emergency. Maybe the police can help. I just want to make sure he's safe. Can you appreciate the urgency? I don't suppose you have his address handy. I don't. The detective leans and whispers something to Gibson. He pulls out the phone and Gibson walks off with my cell. Here's what's going to happen. My partner is going to look up the address for that number right now and swing by the location to check on him. We call it a welfare check. When I write it up, I will say a concerned citizen warned us that this man presented an imminent threat to himself. If we find him, we'll issue a 5150. We'll put him under an involuntary psychiatric hold until a doctor determines that he doesn't present a danger to himself. That's the best I can do. My colleague is on this right now. You two come with me. Wesley and I trade glances. We walk back across the street, our heads slightly hanging while Detective Blossom leads us to a sedan. I'm still worried about Diego. What's happened? We found a fourth body. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.